Welcome to Medspectives, the podcast about healthcare professionals, the stories of their practice, and the diverse perspectives into the world around us. I'm your host, Arvin Rajan, and on today's episode, we're joined by Dr. Khalid Zalme, a general practitioner in the UK. One of my favorite parts of running this podcast is making connections and friends with people all around the world. From this conversation with Dr. Khalid, we discovered a mutual love for videography, and we talk about the power of storytelling in film. Dr. Khalid shares how film was what kept him sane in medical school, and how this interest led him to making short films as a med student. He continued this passion into his practice, and now makes educational medical YouTube content. We talk about the National Health Service in the UK, and how exactly it works in healthcare, and the importance of personalized medical care for your patients. In his free time, Dr. Khalid also enjoys tying medicine with humor on TikTok and has a large following on the platform. This was a fun conversation and I hope you enjoy. Glad to have you here, Dr. Khalid. How are you today? Thank you very much. Glad to be here. I'm good. I'm good. It's my day off today. So it's a paperwork day and speaking to yourself, which is a good break from paperwork. So thanks for having me. Awesome. Glad, glad you could take the time um, out of out of that day to uh, come talk with me. I, um, I'm excited to hear from you because I am someone who loves humor and I love good humor. And I've watched a lot of the uh, social media and all the the TikToks that you make about like you know medical medical humor, and I love it. Like you're you're genuinely like funny in all in all the videos, and you. you have a YouTube channel too, which is like you put a spin on that where you use it to also educate. And so it, it makes the content very interesting and, and, and that. Um, so I, I just really appreciate that. Um, just kind of start out though, what kind of motivated you to go into medicine as a field? And, and when did you know that that was what you wanted to do? So I guess my route was not really traditional in the sense that I didn't just get in the first time. My parents weren't doctors. Um, I kind of, from a young age, kind of went towards science. It kind of made sense. Science and mathematics were my kind of thing. And then as I kind of just grew up, um, the path kind of just opened up a little bit. You kind of looked at what kind of things you wanted to do. I've always wanted to do things that impact other people's life. As cliche as that sounds, this almost sounds like I'm in a medical school interview. <laughs> so um, it kind of just opened up and I thought, you know what, I'll apply um and I was kind of like yeah it'll be great if I get in if not we'll try something else and I didn't get in the first time and that's how I guess that's when I first thought right I really need to have a look at it because if I want to go down that route I've got to be sure I want to do it so at the age of I don't know 17 18 where you're kind of making these big life-changing decisions um having a failure as such um makes you reconsider it and say, right, do I really want it that much for me to then put a year on, you know, hold and retry and go and do all these things again. So for me, it was, you know, doing a bit of work around medicine. So I took a job as a healthcare assistant. So they're basically people in the hospital that help nurses look after patients. So helping them with, you know, their breakfast, helping them change those kind of things. And once I did that, I was like, you know what, I did about three, four months of that. And I thought, right, cool, next, you know, season of exams, got to do better. This is what I want to do. And kind of being in the hospital, seeing the, the hospital's like a metropolis. It's got its own life beat and see ward rounds going on, lots of things happening. It was quite exciting. So that was kind of my 
initial route into it. And I did my exams again and uh, got the grades and started medical school. Gotcha. And and I think this, this is funny because um, what I've heard from ad- people giving me advice about like medical school interviews is whatever you do, don't tell them that you want to help people because it's the most cliche answer. But it's interesting that that's actually like the base reason that a lot of people want to do it. And it really is because people want to help people. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's like it's, it becomes so much of like a little game of cat and mouse. It's like, OK, so it's this thing. They know I'm here for this. <laughs> Because I want, but I'm not allowed to say it. So I have to make some like long ass route around it <laughs> just to, to kind of make up for it. But um, I, yeah, I found a way of kind of just going through my background, trying to break down why I wanted it so bad. And I guess that takes another level of thinking as well. So right. for me, it was kind of like my background of coming from Afghanistan, coming to, to this country at the age of seven. And seeing what, you know, terrible, you know, bad healthcare is like over there, people dying to seeing, you know, a country where they've got great healthcare and being able to, to train and have that opportunity is, is I think, uh, incredible honor. So it was those kind of things. I just had to verbalize it. I think, you know, sometimes that's right. the toughest part. Right. And talking about the healthcare system there, I know it's it's drastically different than that in the US where, you know, we have insurance companies always, you know, in the middle of everything. But um what exactly is the NHS and, and how how does that system work? Like after you get out of medical school, do you go straight into it or or how does that whole uh, system work? Yeah, so it's a good question, actually. Um, the NHS is basically like a socialist socialist healthcare system. You, It's free at the point of contact. So anybody in the UK, if they get ill, um, if they're a resident here, can get you know, services from the NHS, emergency services, operations, or those kind of things for free. There's there's no charge. And the way it is um, funded is through taxes. So the government pays to support every hospital, every clinic, you know, GP surgery. And the way they do that is through taxes. And um, the way that gets cascaded down is basically you have the government paying the money to the, the kind of NHS England, which is a body that looks after all of the different areas of health services, say in the Southwest, London, various areas. And then you've got another group called the CCG who then have to decide how much do we give to this hospital of the budget? How much do we give to this clinic? And all those kind of decisions, which are tough, that don't want to be making those decisions, um, are made based on the healthcare needs of the population. You know, what are the rates of diabetes in this area? Um, what's the socioeconomic look of this uh, sort of area? How much more money do we need to put in to help people um, have access to, to healthcare in that area? So, so yeah, complex, but also from the outside, very simple in the sense that if you are ill, you go to a hospital, you don't need paperwork. You just go in and you'll get, you get seen for the condition you have, which obviously very different from America. So for me, that's very sort of alien, kind of the complexity, I guess, as well. I'd love to know more about that. It's, it's yeah, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, because because the thing here, I think, like a lot of times people don't want to go to the hospital because of the high fees. And, mm. and so most people like to deal with things and they'll just like deal with it for a long time. And some of the times it's not serious, so that's okay. But then when it is serious, that's when it really shows it's, its teeth um, and, and is really bad in terms of like, um, I guess, downsides. I, I remember like 
learning about like I think Canada also has like a kind of similar system um and I've heard that like sometimes it takes a long time to to schedule appointments because of um you know because of the system do you have any kind of downsides like that particularly of this kind of system yeah so you're quite right the downsides are getting appointments and getting referrals so for the moment um what we are doing with appointments with the COVID situation is we're doing, a, you know, at the very point of contact. So if you, uh, I work as a family doctor. Um, so for me to be able to, to, to see patients, um, we, we do a clinic, but we do one doctor uh, a day doing that clinic. What we're trying to do is triage the majority by telephone calls and video calls um, like we're doing today. So you can get a lot of information through that. But I guess the step where it's most kind of, the, the biggest bottleneck is once you see a family doctor and they decide you need, you know, to go to hospital for X, Y, or Z, and it's not an emergency, i.e. it's a routine referral for, you know, gallstones that aren't giving you pain or anything like that, then that wait, you know, the waiting times have increased. And obviously COVID hasn't helped with that. But yes, uh, in, you know, if you look at the waiting times over the years, um, that has increased and, and that, that is a problem. Gotcha. And, and, um, about yourself in, in general. So you, you are a general practitioner, right? A GP, um, as they call it call it, what exactly does that entail? Is that kind of like equivalent to like a family medicine physician here kind of? Yeah, exactly. So there are different forms of GPs. You could be a GP who is a partner at a surgery. So you you own and you run that surgery. Um, there's a GP that's a salaried GP at, at a surgery. So that partner who owns the surgery then hires somebody for a set salary to work there, say three or four days a week. I'm what, what's known as a locum GP, which is essentially a freelance GP. So I'm able to set up my timetable, have time for things like this um, and TikTok videos. Um, but it, it gives me that little bit of, kind of flexibility um because i might be able to you know just pick my shifts for the next month and and find out you know find gaps where it can be put in so uh so yeah that's how it is and uh, yeah essentially the same as for you guys it's a family doctor uh, working in a clinic seeing patients in primary care so we we i think have 80 percent of the contact with people coming into healthcare. um so we are essentially the gatekeepers who needs to go into hospital who is there with a cold, um, who needs antibiotics, those kind of things. Gotcha. And um, it's interesting to see, like, you guys are the, like you said, the gatekeepers, right? You're, you're, you see everything, and so you need to know everything, uh, or at least, like, in, in, a, in a general sense, so you can, can direct people um, to different places. In terms of, like, I guess, education-wise, after you finish medical school, what would be, like, the route to go through GP or if you wanted to do like surgery, what steps would you have to take to do that? What, what exactly is the difference after medical school? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, in the UK, once you've finished medical school, so that's five or six years, depending which medical school uh, you go to. So we don't have pre-med like, like you guys have. Yeah. Um, you literally just go straight into to med school. You may do sort of um, other degrees beforehand. But once you've finished, you've got your two years initially, um, which are your foundation years. So um, it's uh, two years of being a junior doctor, as we call it. Um, I think after the first year, you're able to pretty much do all, you know, prescribing medications and everything like that. Um, so 
you're fully registered after the first year. So once you've done your first two years, that's when you decide which specialty do I want to go towards. And if you choose medicine, say uh, if you want to be an internal medic in the hospital, um, you go into core training for that. If you want to do surgery, you go into surgical training and it's got its own interviews and its own sort of exams to, to go through. For GPs, it's GP training and that's three years. So the first two years is within the hospital majority. I think I did a four-month stint in the first two years within general practice. But essentially, the idea is that they want you to get as much of kind of hospital-based experience. And it's, as you said, it's kind of general. So you're doing a couple of months in dermatology, a couple of months in rheumatology, a um, little bit of surgery. So you kind of just get a broad perspective of different specialties. And then your final you know, 18 months or a year you'll be spending in kind of general practice in, in a clinic. Gotcha. And um, in terms of you being a GP, what, I guess, gravitated you towards doing that? Um, I know you, you, especially being a GP, you need to be like very um, open to people and very good at like socializing and communicating with them because I think trust is like, is so important, you know, because you're, you're literally have to listen and figure out, you know, anything could be wrong. Like, you know, you could have like mental health issues in the, in the background behind, you know, just a general appointment. So what exactly was it about the practice that, that drew, drew you in towards that field? I think it was probably a combination of a couple of factors. I think the first part was just the amount of variety there is. I would get very bored. I'm one of those people that would get very bored if it was, if I was doing just one task again and again, I'd literally be like brain dead, but the variety of that, you know, that that one day you're seeing somebody with mental health issues, some some something else you're seeing is sports medicine issues, you're seeing joints. It's kind of that kind of being a jack of all trades um, kind of thing. That that kind of drew me to to general practice, but also I think one of the things I kind of identified about myself through med school was what kind of things am I good at, and I think. That's another important part to, to think about for medical students listening is sometimes it's really good to, to see what are my key skills, the things that I feel I'm better at. And for me, I think communication skills was, was really up there. And uh, so I did much better in my OSCE exams um, than my actual you know written finals or your MCQ finals. So um and those OSCE exams are like the skills exams. Yeah, sorry. So you, you guys probably call it something else, but yeah, clinical skills exams where you're gotcha. doing, you know, cardiovascular examination, you're doing respiratory examination, you're talking to patients. Um, well, they're actors, but they're pretending <laughs> patients. Um, so, so yeah, when, when I was doing those kind of clinical exams, I would do far better. And I thought, right, what kind of specialty? would give me most contact with patients and what what kind of specialty can I take my skill set to my communication skills to and um and also uh, yeah general practice kind of provided that that's awesome kind of a jack of all trades yeah exactly that's awesome Ma- master of none jack of all trades yeah I mean that that's kind of a, a life um you know like they, they some people say like you know you need to get like a well-defined arrow in some some kind of particular field but I just feel like, you know, experiencing a little bit of everything keeps it fresh, like keeps it interesting day to day. Like you said, um, you, it's, it's kind of numbing to do the same thing every day, but being able to experience all these things is, is, I mean, I guess it it varies between person to person, but personally, I think I agree with you in that, in that way. Um, but 
kind of, I guess, transitioning from that, right? Your your practice and how, how long exactly have you been practicing um, as a GP? So, so I've, I finished medical school in 2011. So, and I finished GP training in 2017. So yeah, four years, three, four years coming up to being a general practitioner and being a doctor almost 10 years. Gotcha. And from the time you started, I know like, you know, the big thing that's, that's happened is, is social media and the emergence of, of doctors and, um, healthcare professionals on social media, which is amazing. I think because you, as, as a, you know, as a family medicine doctor, as a GP in particular, one of your main things is connecting with people and gaining that trust. And I think that we're moving towards like a future where medicine is kind of like more casual in a way in a sense where like people are able to learn about it from all kinds of sources you know you address your talk doctor is not as like some you know high um you know someone high above you and you you're able to really feel comfortable with them and talk to them as if you know they're a friend and you you've really like captured captured social media well and and youtube well and the the education aspect on there but I'm I'm curious to know like what caused you to look into social media and, and kind of apply medicine onto social media as well. Completely happened by accident, so there was no plan to this. Um, <laughs> I think it started about five six years ago, and I think again I looked at what I learned from, and I'm a very visual learner. So for me in medical school, when I was looking at like OSCE exams, clinical skills exams. When I was trying to learn examinations, rather than reading it from the book, for me, it was a lot easier to visualize it if I saw somebody doing it. So it meant I was on YouTube, I was doing how to do this examination, and I saw that there weren't that many videos, there weren't videos breaking it down. And I think from that kind of experience going, do you know what, there probably are other students doing the same thing. So when I became a junior doctor, when I had a little bit of time, um, I was able to kind of just get a team together and be like, right, guys, this weekend, we're going to smash it. We're going to do, we literally did all of our kind of clinical examination videos. I think there's like 27 of them on YouTube. They were all done on the same weekend. So, yeah, so they were all done. We literally like woke up at eight o'clock, went down to one of the clinical skills centers in um, London and just like blitzed out all of the examinations and then, took years of editing it as you kind of know with editing it takes a lot longer to do it but um it was kind of putting something out there that i thought hadn't been done that often and um and something i'd wanted to, to, to see myself and then it kind of continued and developed from there same with right kind of tiktok is picking up where people are going where people i think wherever people go there is always going to be the need for information and and it's kind of providing that information in that easy digestible manner right and talking about the exam examinations that you uh, mm-hmm. that you mentioned at first like those blew up like you've gotten a lot of hits on that I'm, I'm sure like you've helped a lot of people with those absolutely and that's something when you're making um those videos you don't sometimes expect that and you don't know that um it's only afterwards that you get messages to say like there are number of medical schools in India who were like, right, that's our key resource for our medical students. Is that cool? And you're like, wow, that's <laughs> freaking awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, sure. Use it, use it. And they're like, cool. We, we're going to use our OSCE examiners are going to, you know, do their checklist based on this. Is that okay with you guys? It's like, 
cool, absolutely fantastic. So it is, yeah, you, you sometimes when you do these things, same with the podcast you're doing, you don't know one day who it's going to reach. And when we did it four or five years ago, I had no idea where it was going to go. Um, so it's all, all about kind of making content and and trying your best and then just putting it out in there. And then somehow the universe picks it up and flies away. Yeah, that, that's amazing. And uh, wow, I, that, like seeing that on such a grand scale, like I guess that's the motivation to keep doing it, right? To keep keep making more content because obviously like someone is picking it up and finding it very helpful. Absolutely, yeah. And I think the, the basics of it come down to, you know, why you're doing it. The the aftermath and, the, you know, what happens afterwards, the, the views and the, the growth, and that's all fantastic and amazing. But the key part is, you know, we were doing it because we were like, right, we can add something to here. There aren't that many videos that break it down step by step. I would really love to see what I'm looking at for the hands for a cardiovascular examination. So when you look at the very basics, it's providing something that's that's not out there. And I think we we did an app as well that had checklists for all the examinations. So all of those things hadn't been done at the time. So it's kind of like, right, let's let's do something that's going to that's going to be different that's going to be unique for us right and going into your future videos like the ones that you've made like recently about the vaccine and um, a lot of education videos that you've made mm-hmm. you always put like a not only do you have a really nice set i love the background that you have in the videos it's very <laughs> very aesthetic um but you tie in like a, a really good sense of sense of humor into the videos because like the another thing is like when you make educational content the the hard part is getting people to stay retained um throughout the the content to make it actually stick and i think you've mastered that with 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 how you make videos and and tie in the humor part of it what what is your i guess um the question is what what do you see as the value of of humor in educational content and in i guess enlightening enlightening topics mm. in general um i guess it's just not to bore the hell out of my viewers um <laughs> my humor is this is what i'm like throughout you know i was like throughout medical school what i'm like throughout my house my wife will just be shaking her head at some point at the <laughs> rubbish jokes i'm making but it, for me it's kind of just adding that bit of personality because i don't want to stand there with my white coat and tell you these are the five signs these are the five signs of anemia you got to look out for this, this, and this. You know, it might work for some people, but what I find is I, I don't learn from that. And I, you know, never learned from that as a kid or growing up. So for me, it's kind of putting in memes, things that I, on a day-to-day you know, basis, my friends or my mates are sending to me, and things that I find funny. And it's kind of infusing my personality into teaching something. And I find when you bring that into your line of work, your um, content creation, that's that's when I think you can engage a lot more with people. So, so yeah, no videos with me wearing a white coat and pointing at uh, a whiteboard, I'm afraid. Yeah, that, no, I'm, I'm completely okay with that. And how have you seen this like in your practice with um, your patients? And how do you think that, you know, you, you mentioned like bringing out your personality when you're mm-hmm. um, communicating over videos or through patients, how do you think it's affected your relationships with your patients? I think it's really good. Um, I have a very chill relationship with my pa- patients. I don't, um, I don't use my surname, so I, I call myself Dr. Khaled. Um, 
So for me, it's it's that kind of, I think you mentioned at the beginning, it's reframing that relationship and allowing them to be able to say things to me that maybe they wouldn't say to other doctors. Um, and it allows me to have conversations like just the other week, um, I was speaking to a patient who had refused to, you know, the elderly patients in their late 70s, refuse what we call a two-week wait referral. The two-week wait referral is when you are referring somebody who you think has cancer, essentially. So they should be seen within two weeks, investigated. And I kind of looked at the notes. I was just calling them for something else. They'd been dealt by another doctor and, you know, doctor documented, you know, perfectly well, told the patient they need to go to hospital because we're worried about cancer. The patient said, I'm feeling fine. I'm good. I don't, I don't want to go to hospital. So I was calling them completely other reason, just, you know, just check up. I think it was a medical medications review. And I kind of just went, whoa, let me just have a look at this. Let's just revisit this one. So you, you kind of didn't want to go to hospital, but then, you know, we're worried about cancer. And he was like, yeah, but I feel fine. I'm, I'm actually okay. And I was like, okay, let me, let's go into, I was like, what, what kind of work, what line of work did you go into? What kind of work have you done before? You know, trying to get a bit of a background of a patient who I've, never met before it's like well i'm a, i was an engineer i did this that and that i was like so say you're an engineer say you're on a bridge and you're driving along and a structural engineer comes up to you and says i'm really worried about the structure of this bridge and that there's a high chance or there is a chance this bridge could collapse if you're driving along it from where you are in your car that bridge may be perfectly normal perfectly stable looking you may not know that. And I gave him a bit of a chance to think about it. I didn't ask him to change his mind at that moment. I said, look, mm-hmm. call us back, have a good think about it. But we, as the structural engineer, are worried about this bridge. We think there could be something wrong. And a couple of weeks later, he called back and went in to have the investigations and they found a sequel cancer and they were able to remove it or they're in the process of removing it. So it's that ability to... Wow to communicate, but also try and find out where somebody else is coming from, what their mind is thinking, how they're processing information, I think is really key. That's, that's absolutely insane. Like to, to hear that, like, I think that because you're, you're not only, you know, telling him, you know, what's wrong, but you're, getting like a greater understanding as well. Like you're, you're responsible to not only understand the condition and understand the like the the diagnostics behind it, but then you have to tie it into the aspect of where are they from, where are they coming from, and I think that's that's really interesting. Like how you're able to do that is that like I'm assuming that's something you gain with experience, right? Being able to communicate with patients at a level where you know you know, for a particular patient, these are the things that would work on them to, to convince them to do this particular thing, or these are the particular things to avoid when talking to a patient in order to stay on the good side. Like, have you had like experiences, I guess, in the beginning where I guess you, you might've brought something up that maybe like didn't help your case, you know, in convincing a patient? Yeah, I mean, you you learn it is it is absolutely an experienced thing. Like one of the things I now absolutely know not to say is when I'm doing a home visit or you know you're going to to see somebody in their home, if somebody opens the door and you think that that's the person's mum or their sister, you don't say it 
because you know once or twice it may have been that i've gone like oh is this your mum they're like no that's my partner and then you're like oh well i've put my foot in it now haven't i <laughs> so i think you quickly through experience kind of work out what things you should say there's not you know that there wasn't like a a manual a study manual to tell you in medical school not to ask these questions but quite quickly you learn to to, to kind of tailor your question and a lot more about letting the patient tell you so uh, my question now is like ah oh, and, and you are or are you a family member so i tend not mm. to uh, ask things as directly but um but yeah i think it's experience i think with experience you you learn how to communicate uh, more effectively with your patients and knowing them is it will make an impact because once you build that relationship you kind of know what their personalities are like how they take information in how they you know their decision making processes occur so yeah all right and so those are the kind of things i guess like it's important to take a history on a patient but also take down and document those things as well so when you meet that patient again you're able to bring those up um i guess so yeah, absolutely. Cool. Sometimes I even write little bits of information in my notes where it's more so in the future, it jogs my memory that, ah, oh, this is the patient that has, you know, a hobby regarding stamps or something. And then it'll kind of jog a few other things about that personality, you know, that person's personality, what kind of, you know, uh, what, what's their decision making like or things like that. So it may not be um, super important with what they present with but it kind of helped me jogs my memory to, to remember them gotcha and in terms of um i guess long term right in in you know recently you started all like online ventures through like tiktok and through through youtube things like that and as working as a gp do you have any kind of um i guess long-term goals that you're hoping to accomplish through you know your practice and through you know your online presence um and it's, it's a tough question right because like you don't know where things are going to go like you, you never knew that you're going to make social media all of a sudden right and and do you have anything like kind of rough then i think not particularly i think when i started um making videos it was because i enjoyed making videos i was making short films in medical school and that were rubbish by the way short films in medical school and kind of just submitting them to like film festivals and stuff but it was more just the art of doing videoing editing that uh that i've just kept up because it's for me it's like a hobby it's the thing that i enjoy doing on the side that means that i'm sane when i'm doing my medicine so mm. i think if it's medicine 100 percent, then you it's going to be tough unless you're one of those people that have just kind of jumped out of the wound and you've just been like i'm going to be a surgeon and that's all i want to do so you know just kick the surgeon away and just grab their scalpel so if you're one of those then you probably don't need much more but for me i always needed other things around medicine you know outside of it to, to keep things interesting for me right and I, I i can completely relate with you i think because you know medicine is what i want to do and of course i'm not in medical school yet but recently like getting into this podcast getting into making youtube videos things like that like it is a lot of fun. You know, I, I think that's really interesting. And I'd love to hear about those short films that you made. I know you say they're rubbish, but I'm sure they're a lot of fun and I'd love to hear about them. Um, but, you know, I enjoy doing those those kind of things too. And I think that's really interesting in a way because you're able to take that passion and then merge it with your passion for medicine, make videos, and then help people even more on top of just helping people in your practice. Absolutely. 
it's like the ultimate kind of thing. And I think that the part that it like blows my mind is that in a given day doing medicine as a family doctor, the maximum number of people I can see of 30 people. So we see 30 people in a day, 10 minute appointments. But if I make a video that talks about a health topic or the, you know, the COVID vaccine, I'm able to then impact so many more people in, you know, that period of time. You can, you can just do this and you can be impacting people whilst you're asleep. That's the crazy part is like when you make content, the power of it is incredible. Um, so that's the, the part that blows my mind. That's the part where I'm like, this is really, really cool. Right. And I want to um, talk about one of those videos that you made. And, and we talked about this a little bit before, but you made a video on debunking COVID vaccine myths. And I loved it. You know, you, I remember you talked about the microchips at one point and you're like, it, like, <laughs> logically, why wouldn't they just use your phone? Like, <laughs> obviously, like, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. But the thing that I was shocked about, like, the first thing I saw was the dislike to like ratio. And I saw a lot of dislikes on there. Yeah. Like, it was almost half and half. Yeah, and I, I was like, why this is this is amazing and then i scrolled down to the comments and it was a war zone mm, it was like bodies everywhere man <laughs> <laughs> there were there were people that were there that i yeah absolutely crazy so what's interesting this is one of the parts where we could be going into a complete different topic altogether is mm. the algorithms for, for these social media companies are all, the, the, there is madness in there as well so what i'm seeing with this video is i'm presenting information and normally what you would think is right if it gets really terrible reviews from the people that have seen them i.e you get loads of dislikes loads of kind of uh, things that say oh i believe in microchips actually you know and i'm like you mean oven microchips yeah i enjoy those too you would think the algorithm would just say right this is just a rubbish video let's put it to one side but what it's actually done is it's just pushed that out as one of the videos that's done really well which is which is really frustrating it's it's in some ways, I look at that and think, so for a video to do well, it just needs to start a massive conversation, a massive war zone, essentially. Mm. And the algorithm thinks that's fantastic. Let's just keep pushing that. So for me, yes, it was a good video in the sense that I was presenting information. I thought, right, nobody's done a proper debunking video. There's a lot of comments on TikTok that was like, what about the microchips? And I thought, right, I'll bring all of those comments that people make and I'll just go one by one. Why does it not, you know, why doesn't it affect your DNA? Why doesn't it do this, this and that? But, um, but yeah, the, the comment section, because YouTube is a search engine essentially and a, an algorithm that then tells people what to look at next, people are searching conspiracy theories. So they're getting that video coming up. In some ways, it's fantastic because at least you can present that and say, look, you know, that this is the counter argument to you, but people don't always listen, I guess. Right. So it's, it looks like the video is being sent to people that are already iffy on vaccines and people that, you know, might have part of them believe that, you know, microchips and things like that. Absolutely. I think, I think the majority of people who watched that video, I looked at the, cause I was, I was doing exactly the same thing as you, like, right, what is going on here? Um, I looked at the um, search terms that were coming up for the video and it was literally like COVID conspiracy theories, COVID vaccine, bad, you know, all the kind of things that you would be like, that's some sketchy people doing that thing. But it's in some ways really worrying as well because 
there are people who deny that COVID exists still to this day, which blows my mind. It's absolutely incredible. Um, so in some ways, I don't think you can completely change the mind of a denier. And, and that's, you know, something that even if you present fact and, and science, they, they're not going to change their mind. But what I'd hoped was that if there were people on the fence, if there were people who wanted information, because sometimes they, people have valid questions about, you know, vaccines, um, then I can present it and say, look, this is what we know. This is what we don't know. And that was kind of the aim. Gotcha. And like, the, the, it's just very concerning, I think, seeing things like this. And when you, I guess, are working, do you encounter patients that I guess are um, hesitant about it? Like, have you had talks with your patients to see like, I guess, the vaccine hesitancy that, you know, is present within, you know, patients that you have? And how, how do you go about dealing with that? So luckily, I've not come across anyone that's been hesitant about the COVID vaccine. Yes, for in the past when I've kind of done, I've been doing clinics and mothers would come in and say, I'm not going to give, you know, I'm thinking of not giving the vaccine for my kid. And then yes, you have the conversation, you go through the logic of how they've come to that decision. And you try and talk them through and guide them to resources that can evidence base the good reasons for having the vaccine. But unfortunately, you can't always change people's mind with this, you know, and sometimes it becomes a bit of a losing battle. But all you can do is just say, look, I appreciate that's what your thoughts are. This is the science. This is what my medical advice is as a doctor looking after you and looking after your child. Um, but um, I've got to say, I've not come across anyone so far um, in, in real life um, that has uh, said no to the vaccine uh, so luckily. Right. And I think the concerning thing is once we're able to get it, you know, for for the common people, like mm -hmm. anyone, you know, that wants it can get it. I think that's really when we're going to see a lot of, of of these people in the comments in person. And it's absolutely. a scary thought. Yeah, absolutely. And that's going to be my thought. My thought on it is, look, People want freedom. That's all cool. But if your freedom impacts poorly on other people in your community, i.e. for you to say, I have freedom, I'm not going to have this, it's all fine. But you're going to impact on your community because you could be spreading it. And that's where it starts to be a problem for me in my kind of logic of, you know, should people be, you know, should they have the vaccine? Should they not have the vaccine? So if you're in a society and you know, you're going into shops, you could potentially be spreading it. And, and that's the difficulty is that people just want freedom and they want to exercise it for whatever reason, just for the sake of it. And and they share the communities and there's very little thought about what the majority of other people want in that community. Right. Because it, it's your freedom, but you're taking away other people's freedoms. Yeah. And that see, that's the frustrating thing about the pandemic. And not to go on a tangent or anything, but this is like the thing that gets me the most about this thing is the the people, you know, that are social distancing, the people that are staying home. Like my parents literally have not seen anyone in the last year, like very, you know, very small interactions. Um, my little brother who's six years old, like hasn't seen his friends. We're taking it very seriously. And then there's the people that aren't taking it seriously. And we're sitting here waiting 
because these other people. And then the no, another annoying thing is like I've I've been talking to a lot of you know healthcare professionals like yourself, hearing these stories, you know, hearing the stories that you've shared, hearing the stories that other other doctors have shared mm-hmm. of patients literally being wheeled in, um, in you know, gasping for breath, people that are on death's door. And then hearing people with, with, I guess, the audacity of saying that this isn't a real thing. It's just, I don't understand how, like, how mindless and how under a rock you need to be to, to believe that. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the most frustrating thing is when you come into contact with people who just deny what is actually happening in existence right now. Um, because you could believe one thing or another, you can believe whatever you want about the origins of COVID or whatever, but to deny that it's happening where people are actually dying and then have the audacity to call other people sheep is just, it's, yeah. Yeah. That's mind. As a healthcare professional, does it like, I feel like if I was practicing right now, I would be, aggravated out of my mind every day to see this you know especially you on social media you're seeing it even more because i feel like people are feel like free to comment whatever online Mm. because you know they're they're hiding behind their screens but seeing that even more you know as 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 being on social media like does it does it irk you to like the point where like you're just i guess so fed up with it um i try not to i'm somebody who the thing is I think if you let trolls affect you, then you're never going to be able to, you know, be on social media to have a platform to say things. And I, and that's the important thing. Yes, there'll be a comment that, that annoys you a little bit, but at the end of it, what I look at it is, look, am I doing more good by what I've done or, or is it, you know, or second of all, what good is it going to do for me to respond to that troll? So if I've got something witty to say, I'll say it and that's the end of it. I don't, I don't want to try and um, change their mind because they're not going to change their mind. But if they want to talk about microchips, I'll probably make a comment about microwave chips and say, yeah, good, good on that. Um, if they want to talk about the, you know, the higher order, I'll talk about lizards. Um, so I think you've just got to, you've got to see trolling as like, I think you've got to become a troll. The true art of dealing with trolls is you've got to go to the next level and become a troll yourself. Um, no, no, I'm joking. Um, so the way I see it is, yeah, you you could, but for me, it looks social media is, is people hiding, as you said, behind you know fake photos of, of whatever and saying what they want, and I try not to let that affect me. Right, and that's the biggest thing I think: focusing on the good that you're doing, and yeah. The, the people that you are helping. Exactly. Exactly. That's the main thing. That's awesome. Well, going back a little bit and, you know, just a little, a uh, little bit of a more, more chill topic. Um, <laughs> what was one of those films that you made? I'm actually genuinely, genuinely curious. Like uh, one of your medical school. Even, I'll tell you what, the acting in it was terrible. Thankfully, I don't think I acted. I, thankfully I went, guys, I'm going to be the director because I'm trying to, this is the vision I've got. So I've got my friends to do it. And we still take the mick out of one of my friends for his acting. <laughs> um, one of them was called Drug Runner. So that was about, um, so I kind of grew up in a quite rough London uh, social housing kind of area, lots of kind of crime. And this was about a guy that was trying to get out of the game 
when you're like young, you're like, I'm going to make an edgy film, yeah. man. It's going to, Christopher Nolan's going to change the world. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Tarantino is going to be like, do you know what? Come, come here. You be my second in command. So yeah, we were going to try, we were trying to do like an edgy uh, drug thriller. It was just like a five minute film, but um, I think it's still on YouTube. It's called Drug Runner. I'm going to find it. <laughs> Please don't. Point, I'm joking. <laughs> so that was that. And, and then my brother did a really good one. I think my brother's, he's a, I've got a younger brother. He's seven years younger than me, but he did, he did a, a good one. Um, I think it was called Human Within or something like that. And it was about a zombie, like a, a different take on the zombie um, kind of apocalypse when that was in. You know, there was a time where zombies were cool. Zombies were so popular. They were so popular. It was like, what was it? Uh, Call of Duty, zombie mode, when it was like, oh, that was the thing. And now it's like oversaturated. And every time you mention a zombie film, people are just like, oh. Again, yeah. <laughs> yeah, not again. So, yeah. Cool, cool. And I, I was talking to someone else about this, but <clears throat> the power of film is limitless. And that's kind of the thing that really gets me into it. Like if you can tell a good story, you can, you can change so many people's lives. Absolutely. For me, when I look back at medical school as like, what was the thing that kept me motivated through med school? Cinema. Mm. Like if I was like doing poorly on an exam and I needed to pass the next exam, and I had like a rubbish day of revising, and I, you know, spent 12 hours doing nothing, procrastinating. When it got to the evening, this is probably still procrastination. It probably was, but I I'd convinced myself if I watch a really inspirational film, the next morning I would be ready. So my go-to films were Pursuit of Happiness. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, yeah, I love that one. Oh, just, it's, it's beautiful. Oh, it's incredible. And I, I can't believe he didn't win an Oscar for that, Will Smith. So I think he was nominated, but he didn't win it. Um, Pursuit of Happiness, Gattaca. I don't know if you've seen Gattaca. I've heard of it. I think I think I might have seen part of it. I feel like it's it's a really popular film, I know, right? It is, yeah. And it's so underrated as well. So it's not like, I don't think it did that well in the uh, in the market when it came out, but it's such a good film. And, uh, and yeah, a few others where... I think the power it inspires is incredible with, with film. And that's one of the reasons I started to make short films. And then I started to make YouTube videos. Right. And see, this, this is like the, I think, best intersection, right? I think sometimes with medicine, it can seem like a monotone, can seem a little bit, mm. um, what's it called? Like repetitive day to day. But Videos do an amazing job if, if done well of capturing those emotions. And I think this is one of the things that I really was frustrated with mainstream media, media about during this pandemic is the yeah. lack of those stories from healthcare professionals and yeah. lack yeah. of like filming them in, in a light where you're empathizing with the doctors and really understanding the experiences that, that you are going through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the power of being able to tell your story when it's done properly, when it's done well, it's incredible. You've seen, I mean, YouTube, the way it's taken off with vlogs and things like that. And now we're seeing a lot of doctors doing their vlog series where they, you know, spend 24 hours with me on call. You know, they're there's, there's so popular, these kind of things. And it's because people love to have an insight and a little window into somebody else's life to see what is that like. And I would have been exactly the same as like a yeah. 16, 17 year old 
I would be Googling the crap out of that kind of stuff. I'd be like, right, what is it like to be a doctor? Because um, you, you didn't you didn't have that. You know, you kind of just had either a story of somebody who's a doctor who would tell you what it's like, or you'd have, you know, a family friend or, you know, an uncle that's a doctor. But this is a, an actual window into somebody's life for 24 hours. Right. And it inspires, you know, continues to inspire people like um, having these role models and people that, you know, we want to be in the future or mm. someone to look towards as to set as a, as a goal. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's awesome. Speaking of role models, did you have anyone, you know, you're, you're talking about how, you know, you, you grew up in, um, or you, you moved at such a young age and, you know, I'm sure like it was, it was, it was difficult doing that. Did you have any, um, I guess, role models to, I guess, get through that? And then, you know, you mentioned how you had to reapply to medical school and to stay committed towards that. Um, yeah, not sure to be honest. I think my biggest role model probably been my granddad so he um he lives in sweden but in terms of just his life it's just been like incredible like his like just by pure inspiration um so he was you know one of the um oldest of his family his dad died when he was just about to go um into uh, university so fairly young so he had to support the rest of his family so um kind of somebody who's, who's taken on the challenge and and ended up going to do like the, the he became a police officer in Kabul um, in Afghanistan and he did like the police academy became one of the, the best police officers from his class and it's kind of that rise of somebody it's almost like a movie isn't it um, yeah and you know if you're interested <laughs> I think uh, we'll be able to sell the rights to that You're right down yeah write it down <laughs> so um but yeah I think the just inspirational basis of, of somebody who's Who's done incredible things i think would be my granddad but i wouldn't say in medicine i've had anything to that effect no no kind of um specific role models but uh but yeah cool and it like role models are universal right you know they could be doing some other kind of career but at the same time you could just it, 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 admire to or hope to achieve that kind of success yeah. in something else yeah absolutely like recently i saw the um documentary on netflix on michael jordan uh, I can't remember the name, but it's just like it follows um, the the Bulls through the, the period of time that, um, you know, he was there. And he's another one that I, I know nothing about basketball, like mm. literally zero, <laughs> apart from like you have to just dribble it and put it in that hoop and it's cool to cheer. Um, but to see somebody, and sports I think is another major one for, for kind of um, being, you know, as a role model, it's incredible what people can achieve. And sometimes people would say, well, why are they getting paid so much? You know, they're just they're just dribbling a ball and shooting a net, but um, they become incredible athletes. And a lot of it, I think, is about their mental, you know, mentality and what it is to be, a, you know, a great athlete. And I think that inspires as well. Right, that's awesome. Well, thank you, Doctor Collett. I don't want to hold you too long, um, but right. this this is an amazing conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been awesome. Yep. Do you have anything else you wanted to add? Not particularly. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed listening to our conversation and thank you so much for listening. If you love Mitzvectives, be sure to follow us on Spotify, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this podcast with your friends. It really helps us grow and I'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much and I'll see you next Monday. Thank you.